Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I'm Walt Hickey. I write Numlock. Uh, today, Neil Payne. Uh, he's a sports writer at 538. He's got a fun substack at neilpayne.substack.com. Uh, he is my friend, and I am very excited to have him on to talk about a topic that uh, might come off as a little unconventional, but we're talking about NASCAR today. The reason that we're talking about NASCAR is that NASCAR's owners and car drivers and team owners have been in a fascinating battle over money and over the fate and the future of the sport. Um, the more that I read about this, the more interesting it got. And Neil has been obsessed with NASCAR since he was a kid growing up in the South. And I wanted to have him on to talk all about what is going on in this league. Um, so it is a uh, fascinating half hour conversation. I promise you're going to find this one cool. Um, but yeah, so I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, thanks again to Neil for coming on. And uh, here we go. Hey, Neil, how's it going? Hey, Walt. Good to be here. Yeah, uh, so people know you from many different places, primarily 538, uh, where you're a sports writer. But I wanted to talk to you today about a thing that I think is going to be very off-topic for a lot of readers of my newsletter, and maybe even some readers of your work, uh, which is uh, some extremely fascinating stuff that's happening in NASCAR, uh, which I think is a league that like has long existed, but like kind of has diminished in notoriety. But um, you and I have been talking a little bit about this on the side, and I am just endlessly fascinated by some of the machinations going on in it, and I just wanted to have you on to talk all about it. So uh, <laughs> could you want to talk a little bit about your experience with, with NASCAR and kind of what drew your attention to it? Yeah, so, you know, I'm from the South. I'm from Atlanta uh, and grew up uh, watching the races and following the sport uh, as a child. And so, you know, I, I think that that was something that was a lot more common at that time, like we're talking about the 90s and the early 2000s being kind of the heyday of um, not just my fan interest, but also a lot of people's fan interest in the sport. And I've recently gotten back into it over the past couple seasons. Not, I don't really know why. I, I've definitely gotten more into motor motorsports in general with Formula One also kind of coming back on my radar. And that has uh, actually been very popular among American audiences, I think, yeah. since you saw the Netflix uh, series Drive to Survive and just people getting into that, uh, the dramatic aspects of that, not necessarily maybe the on-track drama, but the personalities and the soap opera between, you know, the drivers and the teams and the, all of the different like backstabbings and machinations is a good word <laughs> for it that you used earlier. Uh, you see that in pretty much every motorsport, though. So I think that people, if they wanted to kind of expand their horizons to a sport like NASCAR, there are so many beefs between drivers uh, in NASCAR. And the great thing about NASCAR is like, you know, in Formula One, you do see uh, sometimes drivers, you know, they will like wreck each other in the sense that they won't give someone space uh, around a turn or something and they might touch wheels or, you know, they might run into someone. But when you run into someone, it's kind of the end of their day uh, because the open wheel cars are 
pretty fragile, uh, yeah. comparatively speaking. Whereas in NASCAR, these are like big freaking tanks of vehicles that they <laughs> can hit each other. And often, uh, there's this term rubbing is racing where basically if you're not, you know, kind of bumping people uh, while you're out on the track, you're not really kind of fighting for position, but you can hit someone. And as long as you don't put them into the wall, uh, you can kind of keep going. And I think that that is sort of unique in the way that it feeds into like the, the aspect of rivalry and aspect of sort of animosity between drivers is because like you can get back at someone later in a race if they did you dirty earlier in a race in a way that like in Formula One, if you hit and mess up your front wing or whatever, you're you're both kind of done for the race. Neil, I'm kind of exhausted at the fact that you found another sport that is basically just hockey. <laughs> yeah, I know the uh, the the checking aspect definitely uh, the the full contact aspect uh, bleeds over between the two. I think amazing. Um, yeah, so so that's uh, that's cool. I didn't know that you followed it when you were a kid. That's that's nice. Uh, I guess like well, it got on my radar recently because of some of the there's uh, you know beef on the track, obviously, but there's also lately a lot of beef between NASCAR itself and the people who own the franchises, and it's got this really interesting structure. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so starting in 2016, they put into place what's called the charter system, which uh, for people that don't know, so basically, there's like 40 cars on the track for every NASCAR race. And in the past, you showed up for the race weekend, and it didn't matter if you were uh, like a low tier team or one of the best, you still had to qualify and and make a certain lap time and be among the top uh, 40 or so uh, qualifying um, cars to make it into the race on Sunday and therefore to get paid for the weekend. So at the peak of NASCAR, if you go back and watch some of the old broadcasts, you'll see they list out like a dozen or more uh teams that didn't qualify. So cars that, that tried, they made the effort, they came out to the track, they got everything ready and they just didn't go fast enough to make the cut. And they didn't end up making any money from that. So starting in 2016, they put into place these charters, which guaranteed that 36 cars would at least be able to have entry into the race. So it only left four chances for teams that weren't part of the charter system to make their, you know, scratch and claw their way into the field for any given race. And for those 36 teams, it offered a lot of cost certainty and, and also income certainty. And it made things a lot easier for their dealings with sponsors, which we'll probably go into as well, is a huge deal for NASCAR teams, more so than maybe any other sport. Uh, and and so this charter system, it was put into place to make it more attractive to invest in a NASCAR team. And I think since you uh, saw those go in, you've seen like Michael Jordan owns a team now or co-owns it, uh, the 2311 racing team. Uh, and, and you're seeing people because they can now kind of latch on to these franchises. It's essentially the same idea as like the New England Patriots and uh, the Atlanta yeah. Falcons. And like that, that is... Uh, what they call, you know, the chart, the teams that go into the charter is like a car and the car number uh, that goes with it. And those car and sometimes the same 
owner can own multiple charters. So like Joe Gibbs Racing, Joe Gibbs is a former uh, NFL coach who also runs a super successful NASCAR team. He has four charters. Uh, So he has four different cars on the track, but some teams only have one charter. And these charters can be bought and sold between the different team owners as well. They can transfer uh, the rights to the charter. And that has allowed the value of those charters to go up. But the problem is that the charter system, when it was put into place, it has to be renewed. It's not uh, like a permanent uh, fixture in the in the way the sport is structured. And so there's some opposition at the top of the NASCAR food chain because NASCAR itself is just the governing organization that oversees all of the races. It has said like, we're not really sure if we're going to renew the charters and the teams are like, you better renew the charters because this is the one thing that's driving our value in investing in your sport uh, and, and making it more attractive for people to come in as owners and know that they can have that secured spot. So that's like a big part of this uh, battleground, like you mentioned between NASCAR, the organizing body and the teams themselves. There's also the racetracks in the uh, mix as well. And the way that the money is split for like a television contract, for instance, they have a big TV deal coming up, I think after this season, I think maybe the um, the NBC rights are, uh, are up or, or whatever. And so they have to figure out a new TV contract and then figure out how that pie gets divided up among the teams, NASCAR itself, and the racetracks and the teams have complained uh, that pretty much all of the money or uh, the overwhelming share of the money goes to NASCAR itself and the tracks and that they're not really getting that much. Uh, and it's much less equitable than you see in other sports where like in the NFL or, or major league baseball, you see roughly like a 50, 50 split between the teams and the players. So in their mind, they're thinking of themselves as like franchises uh, that then supply the talent, the players, or in this case, the drivers to the league, which would be NASCAR. NASCAR sees it differently and they sort of see the driver or the teams and drivers as independent contractors and just part of this mix that also includes the racetracks that they have to coordinate with uh, to, uh, you know, stage the actual race events themselves. And so combine that with the fact that advertising makes up a huge share of the revenue for any of the teams and teams are starting to lose really high profile um, advertisers. Like we, we talk about the early to mid 2000s, the heyday of NASCAR, you had a lot of companies that just seemed like it made a ton of sense for them to be a NASCAR. Lowe's, uh, home Improvement or the Home yeah. Depot uh, or, you know, uh, just iconic brands being in the sport that then you could associate with the driver. In a lot of cases, the driver was in TV commercials. Like Tony <laughs> Stewart was in Home Depot commercials. Uh, and it was really sort of fed into this relationship between like th- this this sport and by extension, the driver in it are the face of our brand. And we have value in that. Those brands have left NASCAR over the past um, decade or so. And you're not seeing them really replaced with the same level of iconic brand. A lot of the uh, cars that you see out on the track now are 
kind of obscure, really more sort of like niche motor racing or kind of car related uh, brands and certainly not the sort of shiny big type of brands that you saw um, in, in NASCAR's heyday. So that That's means that trouble. The advertising, that is big trouble because advertising revenue from having these cars basically be rolling billboards for a particular brand uh when the when the big brands leave you get less advertising revenue and since the teams are so dependent on that that increases their desperation to leverage the charter system as an alternative means of getting revenue yeah this is uh, the this money bit's fascinating and i want to i want to get into sponsorships we'll get into that in a little bit but the first i, I want to get into one other thing real quick which is that nascar itself um, most other leagues are large nonprofits. Maybe they're Major League Baseball, and they have a century-old antitrust protection. Like they, they tend to be like organizations that are either owned by the franchises or you know not, exist as a not-for-profit that basically serves as an intermediary between the franchises. Um, NASCAR is just a family business. Yeah. Yeah, the the France family, which goes back to this guy, Big Bill France, who <laughs> essentially, yeah, he essentially created NASCAR. I mean, there were uh, there were unaffiliated, kind of loosely run stock car races in the South before he came along, but he was the one that was able to wrangle together the support of all of those different factions and pull them into one, you know system that then ran a uh, a series of circuits that became NASCAR. Uh, and it was all centered around things like the Daytona 500, which used to be literally run out on the beach of Daytona, Florida. Uh, oh, no. and, uh, and, and, you know, they built the Daytona Motor Speedway and they built Talladega, uh, the other, you know, huge super speedway in Alabama. And you can see why the France family and it's now run by his his son, um, that they sort of see it as being kind of an extension of their their father's legacy to continue running it and continue kind of having like Bill France, he ran things, I don't want to say with an iron fist, but it was sort of like what he said went back in the day. Um, and a lot of what he chose to do with the sport was responsible for growing it. You couldn't really argue with uh, his choices because the, the sport was making so much progress under the leadership of the rest of his family, though, you can kind of take issue with that. And I think that's why maybe the, the France family and NASCAR itself as the central organizing body has lost some of their uh, ability to kind of have unchecked power over the sport is because, <laughs> a lot of the decisions that were put into place to try to make the sport more popular and capitalize on its moment of, of uh, popularity in the two thousands have kind of backfired and drove away the existing fans while not really adding new ones. Fascinating. Yeah. Like the money split is wild. Cause now I want to talk about the tracks, which I was reading up on it and the tracks get 65% of the money from the TV deal. Like they're a huge factor and then I like read a little more and it was like, there's two track operators and one of them's NASCAR. Yeah. Na I mean, NASCAR, when they pay the tracks, they're actually kind of also paying themselves. And so that goes back to the analogy to a sport like the NFL, where again, the teams and drivers want it to be like, okay, Joe Gibbs racing is the Patriots and yeah. uh, Hendrick Motorsports is the Eagles uh, or whatever. 
but NASCAR sort of almost sees it as like the tracks are the franchises because the tracks are the are are where they're actually holding the the events and that the teams are just the players. It's like the Eagles can cut, you know, some defensive back, but they're still the Eagles afterward. Whereas uh, in the case of the teams, they're like, can you really have a sport without Denny Hamlin? Can you have a sport without Martin Truex Jr.? And so that I think comes down to a lot of, that's probably the most similar aspect of this fight to the fights that you see in other sports, which are between the owners uh, who are represented by like a Rob Manfred or a Roger Goodell, yeah. you know, type of commissioner and the players is the players making the argument that like, we are the sport. People come to see us. They don't come to see the, the laundry that the, the players are wearing in the form of the <laughs> uniforms. And I, you see parallels of that in this NASCAR spat where it's like, are you really coming for the track or are you coming for the players uh, or for the drivers? And you can kind of see why they are kind of coming for the track in a lot of ways. And that's what makes this more complicated is because the tracks are so much, so ingrained into the culture of the sport. And like, could you have a NASCAR without a Daytona uh, or a Talladega? It really, you know, the tracks themselves make up so much of the fabric of what we think of as NASCAR. Which is true, but like you can have a, a a race without Daytona, and the answer is F one. Like there's F one, like is in Vegas now. They're in Miami. Like they're kind of eating their lunch domestically. So like it's interesting that like you can watch this kind of like the further back you like if you look at it very closely, it's like oh yeah, NASCAR totally has the advantage because people come for the tracks, not the drivers. And then if you take like two steps back, you're like oh wait no, there's other racing in the world. Well, and there's other sports as well, and that's what's really interesting. So. You know, NASCAR was in a position of real relative power in the mid 2000s. Uh, and in 2005, I think they were the second most watched sport in the country behind only the NFL. Uh, and that was kind of the peak moment of the sport where, you know, all of the big advertisers were in on NASCAR. It was the fastest growing sport in America. And wow. the story of NASCAR since then has been a story of really you know, steep decline, I think, in both like viewership, money uh, from from some of those advertisers and just general fan interest uh, in a lot of ways. Like the, the sport is no longer at the peak of its space in the cultural zeitgeist, to, uh, to say the least. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that that I think nobody can really fully agree on. And that are seeing some? that talk. Well, so. In my opinion, the biggest reason is that they put in trying to capitalize on the success and looking around at the other sports leagues and thinking like, well, they have playoffs. We need a playoff system as well. We can't have a situation where like some guy is so far ahead in the standings in the last handful of races of the season that like, why would you watch? We need to kind of manufacture some drama late in the season the same way that every other sport does with uh, with its playoffs. So they put in this thing called the Chase for the Cup uh, starting, I want to say it was in like 2004 or 2005 was the first year that they put it in. And the problem has been that the rules around the chase keep changing. It's a oh. very convoluted system. If you think <laughs> about the playoffs in other sports, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like at the yeah. end of the regular season, 
every team that doesn't qualify for the playoffs is eliminated. And then you have, you know, head to head competitions until you whittle it down to like the Super Bowl and whoever wins is the champion. You can't really do that in auto racing because you can't really have a race with like two drivers in it. That would be incredibly bizarre. Uh, And so what they do is they still have the eliminated drivers be in the the field and they run the races kind of the same way they would any other race but the players that are uh, the drivers that are qualified for the championship uh, chase uh, just are kind of competing against each other as well uh, and they get like a separate series of playoff points and then they've added oh, stage screw that. Well, yeah, and they've added stage racing, which is they put in these kind of competition caution flags uh, three times in the middle of a race so that they kind of pull the pack back together and you get points for winning the stages that are sort of sub points within a race. So I think one of the valid complaints is the system has become so convoluted that it's very difficult to keep track of the implications or the stakes. It's not like in football where you can just look at the score and realize like, okay, this team is winning and these are the implications. And maybe if I need to, I'll look at the standings and try to figure out, you know, uh, or come up with the little permutations that people do in week uh, 18 of the NFL season. That's about as complicated as it gets for the other sports. But in NASCAR, it's like that all the time uh, and even more convoluted (laughs) because of the point system. So I think that has really backfired. It used to just be like, You just went out and raced and whoever won the most races or had the most points, that's who won the championship. And, you know, I do think NASCAR was also a a victim of its own success in a certain way in which you saw, you know, in the past, the drivers used to be guys like Dale Earnhardt, who grew, he was the son of a, uh, of another NASCAR driver, but he grew up, you know, in relative modest uh, circumstances in North Carolina. He was a, you know, just dyed in the wool kind of like, racer and he was a man's man and you know one of those type of guys and he didn't take any crap from anyone and he wasn't really about like the corporate scene i mean he was like just about sort of you know uh, doing whatever made sense in the moment as as a racer and a lot of guys were that way it was a very southern sport and they all kind of came from that shared background but as the sport became more popular, you saw drivers come from other parts of the country like Jimmy Johnson uh, and Jeff, Jeff Gordon before him. But especially Jimmy Johnson, I think, is the poster child for this. He's from California. And wow. when you hear Jimmy Johnson talk, he, he's he's kind of boring. You know, he's he doesn't have that sort of same kind of colorful personality. He's very corporate. He's like. Well, you know, the Lowe's 48 Chevy uh, did great. My guys had a great t- uh, put together a great race car for, for us today and we did the best we could. You know, it's like, very, yeah. you know, this very kind of robotic type of talking that I think a lot of the guys, especially as NASCAR became uh, had, had a higher barrier to entry in terms of finances for like a family trying to get their son or daughter into driving, you had to kind of be rich to to be able to participate in this sport uh, when you were young. And then that's the type of people that rise up to the highest wow. level later on. So a lot of the drivers now, I, I feel like fans complain that they can't connect uh, with them in the same way because the fan base is fundamentally more of a blue collar working class type of fan base, they, more concentrated want, in the South. They want John Wayne on wheels and they're instead getting <laughs> like the spokesperson for Walmart. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's a great comparison. And so I think that it's they found it more difficult to relate to the drivers. And so when you combine that with the super convoluted playoff system that feels very contrived and they put it in and the fact that the playoff system, it produced a lot of Jimmy Johnson titles. He won seven titles, which is tied Mm. for the most all time. Uh, And he's arguably the greatest driver ever, but that came at the expense of somebody like Dale Earnhardt Jr., who never actually won a championship despite being the most popular driver and the son of you know, the the previous, you know, kind of greatest driver of all time and a guy who really embodied that that spirit um, that that has been kind of lost. So I think you had situations where like the, there was a misalignment between who the champion was and the most popular driver uh, Mm -hmm. and just a lot of different changes. And I think uh, in a lot of ways, this doesn't get talked about a lot uh, or maybe as much as it should have, but I think the 2008 financial crisis also played a big role in the decline of NASCAR in the sense that now you have my attention. Go on. (laughs) Well, so it's uh, NASCAR's fan base was probably affected by that more just in terms of the region uh, that uh, that it's concentrated in. Yeah. And also, you know, just the more blue collar type of fan base uh, that you saw them probably lose a lot of disposable income and just not have that same ability to attend races or watch them on television, or they would be less attractive to sponsors, uh, you know, as a result of that. And you can go back and watch a race and uh, see, you know, that it's sponsored by like American Century Mortgage or, you know, something like that. Like uh, it's a lot of the stuff that we saw in other sports for sure around that same period of time. But I think NASCAR in particular was like in that sweet spot of demographics that they were the rise of NASCAR was fueled by a lot of the same things that uh, drove the housing bubble and and uh, the various other um, aspects that were not sustainable about that economy. And then it was also taken down by the same things when when those uh, evaporated. So those are kind of my two cents. Like you'll hear a lot of culture war talk around it as well, where you know, they'll complain that NASCAR has gone woke and all this stuff. And like, cause they won't let them fly Confederate flags in the infield at um, races anymore, which was a thing as recently as like maybe four or five uh, years ago. Oh boy. I don't buy a lot of that. I think that mostly it's just really difficult to get people to buy into a sport when they have trouble relating to the drivers, trouble following the standings and and the playoff system. And I forgot to mention also the broadcasts uh, have drawn a lot of complaints, uh, especially this year, but I think in general about having commercials during green flag racing, about the fact that the races are really long. You know, uh, baseball uh, we're seeing as an example of a sport right now that's making a concerted effort to – present a more viewer friendly product that has less downtime and more action and doesn't drag on. And they've been pretty successful so far early in the season with the pitch clock and some of the other things that they've done. Whereas a NASCAR race, man, you have to be committed for like watching this thing for like four hours on a Sunday. And that's a pretty big ask, I think, uh, especially given how many different um, options people have now for entertainment. So I think that that is also um, combined with the fact that maybe millennials are not as into car culture and they're not as into some of the things that maybe people uh, 
that were drawn to NASCAR in a previous generation because of. So off the top of my head, those are all, I think, probably the most valid reasons why NASCAR has lost its um, its cachet. And we're just sort of seeing the effects of it because it's a sport that wants to feel like it's in that same conversation with the NFL and the NBA and the NHL and, and Major League Baseball. But the numbers don't really bear that out uh, as much. Now, it's still relatively popular. I mean, that's sort of an interesting yeah. place for it to be as well. It's like it hasn't rumors of NASCAR's decline have in some ways been overstated. Uh, and in some ways, they're also still trying to kind of claw their way back to where they were in 2005 and not finding a way to move forward uh, and think about 2023 instead. Yeah, like and talking a little bit about sponsors because I did want to hit that before we wrapped it up. It's interesting because, like, from the perspective of like the France family, you know, being a, a very successful, popular regional sport that promotes the venues that you, you yourself own is kind of a fine outcome for them. But I can understand why the 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 charters and the cars and the drivers like maybe regional popularity isn't what they want. Like they can see, they look across the ocean and they see the F1 being one of those popular sports on the continent. Like that, I think you can kind of see, you know, that there's a world in which like, you know, NASCAR can be very lucrative with, while still not being nationally dominant, but that's not a world for the drivers want to see. And it's not a world that the sponsors would probably want to see. How do the sponsors factor into it? Yeah, the sponsors uh, being a national brand, I think, is what drives every sports league uh, and their ambitions. And so I don't think NASCAR, you know, to their to their credit, they did not rest on those laurels of being a regional sport. And in some ways, I think the fan base complains that they're they're almost ignoring the Southern roots of the sport too much by expanding to places across the country and going on these kind of cookie cutter tracks that uh, ignore the, the special historical tracks that, that there are in the South. And they're trying to go kind of back and, and reappreciate the roots a little bit more. There was a track called North Wilkesboro in North Carolina that got shut down and they moved away from it in, uh, I want to say the nineties, they've actually restored it. And Dale Jr. has actually been a big driving force behind that. And they're going to race there again. And they're doing, they do dirt track races in uh. cup cars, which they used to really never do at Bristol. Uh, that was a couple weeks ago as well. So they're trying to make an appeal to that core base and, and, and fan base. But I think, uh, um, there is always this tension in a sport like NASCAR between the original fan base and the southern roots of the sport and expanding it like is almost your duty as a sports league to kind of have that ambition to be a bigger brand and, uh, uh, you know, capture more of the market share as a, as a league compared with some of the other leagues that they feel like they're on on the same footing with. And that tension is probably stronger in NASCAR than any other sport because you don't hear like maybe hear a little bit of this in hockey where it's like, why are they expanding to the Sun Belt or, or the West Coast of the U.S. when they should be concentrating on Canada? I think that's an interesting parallel uh, for NASCAR because in NASCAR, it's like, why are they focusing on the rest of the country when they should be focusing on the Southeast? But you don't hear that in, in the NFL. There's no talk of like, you should be respecting Canton, Ohio as the seat of, <laughs> of, of, of NFL history. You just don't hear that or Green Bay or something. So yeah, I do think that there are um, all of these historical factors and the different competing interests come to the fore in NASCAR more than other sports, because 
it's the curse of being that that like the they're either the largest fish in a small pond of like the leagues that are under the big major pro sports leagues or they're the smallest fish in that huge pond and they can't yeah. really decide which of those they want to be fascinating so now i think what needs to happen is we need to trade one canadian hockey team for a racetrack uh, that will be located in like manitoba just to maximally piss everyone off <laughs> i would love to see that yeah i don't think they uh, i don't think they've raced in canada i could be wrong about this and so, uh, there are there are street tracks in places like toronto and vancouver where like uh, indy cars uh would race but i don't think nascar has done that but i wouldn't put it past them I and mean, they're doing a race on the streets of chicago which huh. sounds like it's like the execution of the the prep for it has been kind of a disaster, but it seems <laughs> really cool also. And they did a version of it on iRacing, which is a, a video game. During COVID, they actually broadcast and had real drivers driving the cars virtually on the streets of huh. Chicago, which was the brainchild of it. So they're doing some of these gimmicky things that the fan base is kind of pissed off about, but I still think could be cool. So I'm of also both minds on it as well. Cause I, I love the, when, when sports do things that are outside the box and uh, you know, kind of just, weird but like hey man it could be cool throw something at the wall because that was the spirit of original pro sports leagues like a hundred years ago that in some ways we've lost that spirit over time as they've kind of stagnated and become more uh, you know concentrated on not losing their spot in the pecking order so you can see a sport like nascar being more willing to take chances but sometimes those chances work out well and sometimes when you shake up your whole playoff system and nobody can keep track of it and it makes <laughs> no sense and it seems super contrived they work out poorly yeah when your playoff system is like too heavily mathematical for 538 sports writer to really engage with you kind of <laughs> screwed up badly um Thanks, thanks again for coming on. Again, this is, I think, like, you know, it's not a topic that crosses a lot of people's plates all the time, but I think it's a fascinating thing. So thank you for, for coming on and doing it. Uh, Neil, where can folks find you? Well, they can find me at 538, of course. And I've written about NASCAR, you know, since, again, you wouldn't expect that to come up on 538. So some of my overflow ideas uh, are at my Substack, which is neilpain.substack.com. You can find some of my NASCAR thoughts on there. It's really fun. I've, I've enjoyed, like, again, like, I like, you know, the whole, like, things that are a little bit too like let's mess around and have fun with it both in sports and uh and in your work man like it's uh it's good stuff i'm enjoying the stuff stack thank um, you sweet thanks for coming on thanks for having me Thanks again to Neil. Neil can be found at 538. Neil can be found at a Substack, neilpain.substack.com. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to JT Fails for the use of our theme song. And uh, yeah, thanks for subscribing if you do. Um, be sure to check out Numlock. And um, bye.